0: This is The Stateless Man for the
1: pursuit of individual liberty beyond arbitrary borders, oppressive governments, and myths of national obligations. If you value liberty and are willing to migrate and vote with your feet, you've come to the right place.
2: Thanks for tuning in. It's a, a beautiful day here when we're pursuing Liberty Beyond Borders. It's my pleasure to be with you. Uh, we have a dynamite lineup, incredible full block of guests. Today we've got Axel Kaiser speaking about uh, Chile as an expat in Liberty Haven. And then we'll have Joel Hurst. He is the author of The Lieutenant of San Porfirio, a novel about Venezuela and a uh, very unfortunate predicament down there. Rob Nadelson in the second hour will join us. He's from the Independence Institute and perhaps is the leading scholar of regarding Article Five amendments conventions or the the Article Five amendments convention in the United States. About you could say a an addressing of the shortcomings of the constitutional limitations that have got us to this point. Uh, he's written with Alec and many other outlets, the Independence Institute. So he will be uh, an expert to call. And then finally, I have Walter Block, an old friend from. New Orleans, He's in well, he's not from New Orleans originally, he's originally from New York, but he is a professor leading the economics program at Loyola University in New Orleans. I got to know him when I was a reporter and editor down there. We're going to be discussing his free market economics program, the Ludwig von Mises Institute, and the future of higher education. So you don't want to miss any of that. If you want to call in, I'm glad to have guests, have people calling in with questions or comments. The number is one eight hundred three one three nine four four three. 313 9443 Now, Axel Kayser, he's actually based in Germany right now, but he has started an organization in Chile, and that is the Fundación para el Progreso, or the Foundation for Progress. And I wanted to bring him on because many of us looked at Chile. it's uh, You could say an ambiguity or an outlier within South and Latin America. And that is to say, it is relatively more economically free than elsewhere. And it makes the top ten, according to various lists of the world, for economic freedom. However, the way that it became economically free is a little bit like what happened in New Zealand. It wasn't necessarily by the will of the people. It was somewhat of an historical accident. And because the people didn't just wake up believing in economic freedom, since that time, since the 80s, under the Pinochet Regime dictatorship, I'm not sure the best term for that one. There's been a, a backpedaling, and in a very significant manner, particularly recently, uh, the, the new government includes, within its coalition, outright or unabashed communists. That does not sound good to me. And I don't claim to be an expert on Chile, but I wanted to bring Axel on to explain this. In his article on the matter, before, before the, this, this election, this latest election, he wrote an article in Forbes in which we republished on the canal blog of the Pan Am Post. Is this the end of the Chilean economic miracle? So that's the question we're going to be posing today, and I want Axel to uh, answer that one for us. So, Axel, thanks so much for joining us all the way over in Europe.
3: Hey, thanks to you for the invitation. I'm very glad to be with you.
2: Excellent. Now, that is the big question. Like I said, the headline which you wrote before <laughs> before the election. <laughs> And then it, it passed, and the result was dominant. I think the new president of this socialist coalition received, I think, 60% of the second-round vote. So very dominant. Does it mean what you suggested it might mean a few months ago?
3: Well, yes and no. On the one hand, she, she did really get a very, very large support from the people who went voting. We cannot forget that most people did not go to voting on um, the last election. So around over 50 percent of potential voters didn't go to the polls.
2: Why is that? What, what is going on in that scenario? Because I, I read that, too, that the legitimacy of the election came under great scrutiny afterwards because of such low turnout or, or participation.
3: Right, right. If you uh, take into account all the people that did not vote for Mrs. Vachelet, then you have almost two-thirds of the, of the potential voters. And, uh, well, there are different interpretations, but I believe that most people do not really want a very radical change which is what she is proposing uh, and, and her coalition is proposing, a radical change in economic policy, a radical change in the constitution, and so right. on and so forth. So um, I, I don't think people are very enthusiastic about that.
2: Right. Well, I hope not. Because uh, when right. we talk about rewriting the Chilean constitution, I just think Bolivarian alliance or Bolivarian revolution written all over it. And I don't want that for Chile. It's a really unfortunate trend in Latin America that we have these countries falling into this trap. Now, just let's just go through a few of these policies. You say radical changes. The rewriting of the Constitution may not go ahead because she doesn't have support, as far as I know, in the legislature to achieve that. But many other policies she does have support for, such as this open admission, universally paid for by taxpayers, higher education, Do you want to clarify if I characterise that correctly? And the other policies that are, you could say, the big ticket items.
3: Yes, uh, I mean her goal is to to open the way to completely free higher education. That means, uh, well, uh, that means that taxpayers have to pay for uh, for that. I mean that uh, people who benefit from education, that the students who go to university, don't have don't have necessarily to pay for it, but. All taxpayers, including those people who don't necessarily benefit from higher education, have to pay for it, and this is one of the old uh, aspirations of, of socialists, which is the idea that education and higher education has to be one of these social goods that uh, anyone can, uh, you know, participate in, and. Um, from an economic point of view it's not a smart idea because this is regressive all people who are in the low income sectors of the population who don't go to university have to pay uh, the university for people who who go there and are usually also uh, the children from higher income uh, families uh, so from that perspective it's not very smart and on the other hand it will produce a lot of waste in resources because you need more bureaucracy to, ad- to administer all these new schemes and, uh, and you send uh, the wrong signals to, to people who want to go uh, to university because the minute you have uh, education for free, then uh, you have all these people studying uh, you know, liberal arts degrees and then they don't get a job and and then you have another social problem and, and and someone you know think about someone who is going to study sociology or political science or something like that uh, mm-hmm. if the guy if the guy has to pay every month an amount for 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 his education he will really think uh, two times before uh, studying something that is not going to be so profitable but he right. if he does have to pay then you have all these enlightened unemployed people <laughs> which, <laughs> <laughs> That's why we call them in. Uh, yeah, and you have the same for right. the uh, US, no? You have in the yeah, US. Yeah, it's it's, it's it's
2: it's in Canada. It's even worse. It's painful. I want to, in particular, I think this point you made originally is so important. That is that this universal funding of higher education is actually regressive or it hurts the poor because even if you make it free, the majority of people who have the time to basically go to university and not work are the wealthier people. And I always say it's like the barber, the hairdresser paying for someone else to go to college. Folks, you don't want to miss any more. This is Axel Kayser speaking with the Stateless Man. Stay tuned. Welcome back to The Stateless Man. We're pursuing liberty beyond borders. We have Axel Kayser, the founder of the Foundation for Progress in Chile. He's actually speaking to us from over in Germany right now, and we're discussing the troubling trend that Chile is basically letting go or rejecting its legacy as the beacon for freedom in Latin America. We've got plenty of material on it. His own article is, Is This the End of the Chilean Economic Miracle? And that's a challenging question. I don't want to think it's the the end entirely. One particular policy that suggests that there are bumps in the road ahead is that this strong push for, quote, universal or, quote, free higher education, which does, it is a regressive policy. It hurts the poor because they're the ones not going. They're having to pay higher taxes to pay for wealthy people who tend to go to university. Uh, It's a bit bit like people who claim that tax credits for housing Helps poor people get houses. Well, who actually owns the houses? The wealthy people, not the poor people. So they get the benefits. It's a similar problem here. Now, Axel, do you want to just expand on that point as to what other policies or what other plans are going ahead in Chile that uh, give you cause for concern?
3: Well, she's planning to raise, dramatically raise taxes on, uh, you know, on corporations, which is uh, another way of uh, getting into consumers' pockets because we know that uh, taxes uh, on, on profits are, uh, it's the consumer who pay them. Uh, right. the in
2: days. the end. In, yeah. in the
3: end. And uh, and she's she wants also to to heavily uh, regulate several sectors of the of the economy. She wants some people in her coalition want to put an end to the independence of the central bank. Others want to make a constitutional reform so that private property is not as strongly protected as it is, as it is now and it performs a stronger, you know, social function, whatever that mm. means. And, right. um, and uh, there are several other, other um, ideas which uh, all points into the direction of uh, increasing the, the size of the, of the state, of the government. And uh, this, this idea of social rights, basically. So it's a way of taking more money uh, out of the pockets of the people and putting it into the hands of politicians so they can you know, bribe the people with their own money. And this is not going to end up well because we had this system before 19, the 1980s and 1970s. Right. And uh, this huge welfare state ended up in, in a complete collapse. So the problem is uh, this uh, fiscal responsibility that we have had so far in these last twenty years it's also in dangerous because of all these new giveaways the government is promising and and this is very very sensitive for a small economy like the Chilean one um. and, uh, and yes it's, it's, it's not going to be their win for Chile in four years I hope not at least but the trend is, uh, is, very, is very dangerous and and if once politicians start doing this and they understand that they get only elected when they prom- promise people benefits then, uh, then it's over with. The, with the, with the sound yeah, economy, uh, you can right. say yes.
2: You can see that everywhere. Yeah, I just recently I was looking at the campaigns in El Salvador actually, and my summary is everyone gets a pony. That seems to be the campaign tactic of everybody that just vote for me and you get Christmas gifts or whatever, they, whatever we want, whatever handouts we can give to you. And this, to me, really points to a problem with the mentality of people. And you you note that perhaps this doesn't reflect most people uh, in Chile, but here in the United States, even in New Zealand, if someone was part of the, quote, Communist Party, I don't think any such coalition could get elected. But apparently people in Chile have accepted that. And I say say that independent, free people don't go around putting their hands out, asking for giveaways, asking for free things. They have some pride and they want to take care of themselves. Do you want to speak about the culture or mentality, the prevailing views in Chile?
3: Well, we are not that different from the rest of Latin American countries. And, you know, mm. if you, if you uh, convince people that government is there for solving their problems and that, uh, to provide them in their necessities, which has, is a very, very, uh, um, you know, deeply rooted Latin American tradition. yes. Uh, To some extent, we we changed that mentality with the free market revolution in the 70s and 80s, but it's coming Mm. back. And, of course, this is very, you know, tempting for politicians to do because that's the way they get reelected. So uh, in Chile, you have more and more people. There are some surveys that that show this, that uh, they are losing faith in personal responsibility. And they are increasingly believing that government uh, has to solve their problems there are, there is still a majority that thinks that everyone is uh, more or less responsible for for his own life and so on but but uh, you you see in this uh, opinion polls that um, this philosophy is changing and the way people con- perceive the role of government is changing and the problem is that the elites it's all today in the, in Chile is the consensus among the intellectual elites almost and the political elites that we have to create a massive welfare state and uh, and that's why i'm i'm saying it. this is this might be the end of the chilean economic miracle because chile became the most prosperous land in 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 in, in latin america and one of the rule models for the whole developing world that was right. a, yeah that one no 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 other country in the world experienced in the world experienced the, the, um, you know, the kind of uh, economic achievements that Chile uh, experienced in the last 30 years. Uh, we had uh, over 50% poverty. We now have less than, than 50, 15%. We more than quadruple per capita income and so on and so forth. Let,
2: well, let me just jump in there because you, you, I mean, you might know that I've been to Chile. and It came after a long trip through Latin America. I started in Colombia and bussed all the way down to Santiago, actually, the last one from Arica in the north of Chile to Santiago was a killer, but, but I got there. Yeah. And I remember when I arrived in Santiago, this is in 2010, I felt like I was back in the United States actually, that after seeing the poverty it, throughout the rest of Latin America, the streets, in Santiago the streets were clean, the people were well clothed. It just had a sense of prosperity. So the difference was just so stark. say back in Quito, Ecuador, or even Lima uh, in Peru. So it really has been a wonderful outcome for Chile and it's so so strange to think of people just throwing that away, you know, I'm very confused as to why that happens.
3: Well, this is a famous disconnect between reality and the intellectual interpretation from reality. Uh, and and this is something that many uh, libertarian thinkers or classical liberals have have written about Hayek, mm. and Friedman, you know. That and 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 I, I guess uh, Douglas North also uh, has the has the best um, well, major
2: We we are really short on time, actually. So I want to get some thoughts on you. Do you still recommend Chile as a place to go and migrate to? It
3: depends. <laughs> it depends in which in which country you are now. <laughs>
2: mm. because, because many people because here in the United Canada, States. Are looking to chile there, there are many many going down they want to start you know gults, culture whatever there are all these different developments going on down there
3: yeah i mean people people don't have to get the wrong impression that everything is falling apart but they all also don't have to get the wrong impression that everything is very stable and secure because we have experienced a, a dramatic a dramatic erosion of the rule of law in the last 10 years now we have mm. uh, a very active terrorist group in the south, which is uh, destroying property and killing people, and nothing is happening. Government has done Whoa. nothing. Whoa. Yes, maybe you don't read that about uh, that much uh, about I'm the gonna have, I'm going to have to look. At, Axel, we're going to be in touch because I
2: want to learn more about that group. We're against the bottom of the hour. If you want to sure. follow uh, Axel, I'm going to post his Twitter on the Fa- Stateless Man Facebook page. Go to facebook.com forward slash the Stateless Man. Otherwise, thanks so much for joining us, Axel. Thanks for the
3: invitation. See you. Excellent. See you
2: Welcome back to The Stateless Man, Pursuing Liberty Beyond Borders. We've just finished speaking with Axel Kaiser about the prospects in Chile. And it, it is very frustrating often that even in the places where you could say freedom has reigned or given uh, born great fruits, people turn their backs on it. And he was just mentioning the struggles to maintain a semblance of, of freedom or of uh, prosperity in Chile. And people, including the, quote, intellectual elites, who seem to think they know better and want to plan and control others. They are getting in the way of that. And we, <laughs> this, this leads right into our next topic. But before I get to that, I, I should note that RBN is having a, a pledge drive. Uh, if you donate $100, you receive an RBN t-shirt and an RBN mug or a 25 Republic of Texas copper rounds. Just call in. Now we have a different number for that one, but if you, if you want to, Call into the regular 1-800 number, and I'm sure they'll put you through. It is 1-800-313-9443. Next up, we have a guy called uh, Joel Hurst, and he's originally from the United States. Uh, the producer is just letting me know the number right now. If you want to donate to donate to RBN, uh, this great network, which I'm I'm glad to be broadcasting with, it eight hundred seven two four two seven one nine. 724 1-800-724-2719. Yeah, so... We are moving on to Joel Hurst now. He is originally from the United States, but he's actually over in Africa right now. I lose track. He's he's obviously a man, an international man in Bamako. Now, Bamako, I hope I'm pronouncing this correct, is in Mali. That is a long way from here. We're going to be speaking about uh, Venezuela, actually, in his book on the matter, which is The Lieutenant of San Porfirio. And this... Is a fiction, a novel, a work of fiction, but it plays into, or you could say, explains the reality that is Venezuela right now, which is a terrible one. And I discussed this last week. I just got back last night, and as I got, as I stayed longer, more, more and more bad things came to my knowledge. I witnessed a mugging firsthand after my only on my first trip to downtown. I only went on one. I don't think I want to go back to downtown Caracas at all because it seems like you're just a sitting duck and then I also learned that a friend of mine who ha- is college educated in the United States is working for under $100 a month if you're working for one under $100 a month as far as I'm concerned you're, you're you've reached the standards of Cuba in terms of economic prosperity that's just a terrible indictment upon the state of Venezuela but I don't want to get too distracted Joel Thanks for coming to The Stateless Man, and let's get right into your book.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
2: Right, so you've lived off and on in Venezuela for about seven years, and is, I, I hope that's correct. And yeah. you wrote this book. It's in Spanish and English. I assume you wrote it in English first, correct?
1: Correct. I wrote it in English, and then we had it translated into Spanish by Editorial Grito Sagrado in Argentina, Buenos Aires, who is, who is incidentally the um, publisher for all of Ayn Rand's work in Spanish.
2: Whoa, okay, I did not, I did not know Ayn Rand had a big following in Spanish, but, uh, I do, I do know that. had a th-
1: big following in a bunch of languages.
2: <laughs> that's, that's great. I, I do know at Universidad Francisco Marroquin in Guatemala, it's required reading. So, so, they're intense at that university. So this one, Lieutenant of San Porfirio, and we do have a review on the Pen and Post. I've not read the book, I will admit that, although, um, uh, Marcelo Estrada, one of our reporters and translators, did read it. I think, and, and from her review i got I got the sense that you were seeking to perhaps explain the conflicting ideologies and why this is prevailing, and why even the destructive outcomes just seem to dissuade nobody almost
1: right um, you know some some situations that you live through are just so. You know, on the one hand, they're so bizarre; you, it's hard to believe that you know things are happening the way they are. But at the other side, at, at the same time, they're so deadly serious because, like you, like you mentioned, they affect the daily lives of of, of real people. But um, mm. that, that there's such a a phenomenon that you know the best way to the the best way to communicate this is is with fiction. Spanish language, um, you know, coming from pre, prior to the Latin American boom, but it, making its Haitian in Latin American boom. Has got the the genre. It's a whole new genre called the the Latin American dictator novel, where mm-hmm. um, the protest novels and are uh, people, in, individuals, artists, uh, authors trying to express what they're seeing and what they're experiencing through the form of fiction. Uh, and so this is a this is a, this is the first dictator novel written. They've historically been written about the the military dictatorships of the you know the '70s and the '80s. This is the first one written about the new dictatorships, the new left wing, uh, if you will, socialist dictatorships. Um, and you know, Venezuela, Cuba, of course, but also, you know, Bolivia, Nicaragua, Ecuador, et cetera. So, certainly, Argentina.
2: Mm. And let me, let me say one thing that I think we can be clear or confident that this Chavismo or Bolivarian socialism, whatever you want to call this movement, which is spreading like a virus, unfortunately, didn't just appear spontaneously. There are reasons, good reasons for why there was maybe resentment or envy that that grew into a political movement that became very violent and ruthless. As far as I'm concerned, do you want to touch upon? You could say the roots of this Bolivarian socialist movement.
1: Yeah, and that's one of the reasons I I wrote the the novel was because there there is another side to the story, and while we don't um, we don't agree with it, uh, we understand it, and it um, and there are legitimate grievances. I mean. The latin american economic system has really never been free market capitalist it's been at best crony capitalist and that was mm. up in venezuela for forty years and so you had a, an elite group of people using political um, using the political system to control the economy of a nation uh... and then and they were able to do this until the poor realized that there was more of them and there was uh... less of the of the rich people and they were able to vote uh... redistribution of other people's, you know, Ill- illegitimately obtained assets, you know, they, they were controlling the big banks and the mining industries, etc., so, you know, unfortunately, it's 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 not as black and white, and that's what I try to do in the novel, is I try to give every character, and there's four main characters from four, they're unique characters, and they're emblematic of, of four different segments of the debate on what's going on in Venezuela, but I try to give mm-hmm. them all personality, and I try to make them all... Uh, real people there's no villains in this novel everybody has got a, a legitimate rationale and if you don't, even if you don't agree with what they're what they're saying you can you can sort of understand why they're doing what they're doing uh, and then how then that leads them into other sorts of activities in sort of a slippery slope like we've all seen um, yeah, one, so.
2: one of one of the elements was just, just so fascinating to me and I guess this is what you're explaining too is just the way that evidence I hate to say it doesn't even seem to matter You know I work with the Pan Am Post and we have a ton of content on Venezuela and Cuba and it doesn't seem, there just seems to be no persuading some people. It's weird. It's very strange the way that we can say that the inflation, the real inflation rate in Venezuela is now in in excess of 300% and the real exchange rate is uh, one-tenth the value of the official exchange rate and yet the stream of comments we receive are almost just attacking us as some imperialists or something like that just for speaking the truth
1: yeah, i don't believe really, no, go for, go ahead no uh, you know hayek used to call the secondhand dealers in ideas those who have the greatest moral hazard in, in, in relation to these types of things those whose decisions do not Im- impact their everyday life and you see these peddling support for the the socialists all over and it's almost a utopic thing and, and in some cases it's admirable and in some cases it's really a power grab. What happens is, is though most of the people who support these types of movements, they're, they're utopic, they're, they don't have any force in the race and they're, they're, they're intellectuals and they're, they're, they're folks who are guaranteed via you know, their own incomes, their, their lifestyle, but be it by music or by you know art or whatever so they don't have to live with the consequences of the decisions made by these ridiculous Authoritarian regimes, um, and then so they, they keep promoting them and they keep promoting them and supporting them, hoping that this is going to be the one that works. Um, we've seen this happen for a hundred years. This is not new. You know, mm. it happened in the Soviet Union. It happened. In, this is this time. This time we're going to get it right. We're going to we're going to get the planning. We're going to tweak the planning process just right where we're going to have. Uh, we're going to usher in a new utopia into the world. Then right. Joe, jo-
2: jo, then- hold hold that thought, buddy. I was speaking with Joel Hur, author of Lieutenant of San Porfirio. You don't want to miss any more of his discussion or explanation of what is going on in Venezuela right now. This is The Stateless Man. This is The Stateless Man. We're pursuing liberty beyond borders. That is international living, financial independence, and personal Sovereignty, we have Um, an international man on the line, Joel Hurst. He's over in Mali, Africa, or Bamako in Mali, Africa right now. But he's written a book, uh, The Lieutenant of San Porfirio, on uh, Venezuela, both in Spanish and English, and in Spanish, El Teniente de San Porfirio. Now, I was just looking through the review here, written by Marcelo Estrada, and it tells the story of a political revolution in a fictitious country called the Revolutionary Socialist Republic of Venezuela, but it's not such fiction, given its uh, insights on the situation there right now, and it is of the magic realism genre. Now, I want to just give a few more thoughts from him on the book and what insights it provides, and then I want to get on to discussing how he became uh, an international man and what, you know, what has led to this story, whether he can share insights on that. But we discussed before about how often the discussions or insights just don't sway anybody. Did you write this book to persuade people, or if, if you did, is anyone actually reading it who isn't already on your side or doesn't really understand your views? Well,
1: as far as who's reading it, I mean, hopefully a lot of people are reading it. Uh, but the, re- the reason I did write it was, was that, was to, um, you know, there's after, especially after Chavez died, there's going to be a lot of propaganda. Films like, you know, by Oliver Stone, etc., are going to try to tell a story that's not exactly true. So mm. I wanted to, um, I wanted to tell the version of the story of, of, of the version that, that I lived, that I saw, that I watched, that I, um, right. that I experienced, and that my friends. Yeah. Had let me, me just
2: let me let me just uh, put a note there. I've I've yet to watch this film, but I need to. But Oliver Stone has been a big fan of Old Chavez, and I don't quite get it. Uh, but he has written, he has produced a, a major film. Uh, I don't have it before me right now. Defending the Bolivarian Revolution. Do you want to comment on what misconceptions he may hold? Because he, we can assume he, be, he believes what he's doing. He believes in it. He maybe he's just misguided.
1: Well, it's again, I think it's back to what we talked about last time. I mean, people, there's a certain amount of, of uh, disingenuousness coming from Hollywood regarding some of these movements in, in South America and other places. I mean, they, they, they assume that what is being provided by these crony authoritarian leaders. Uh, is good enough for the people of Venezuela, where it's something that they themselves would never stand for, I mean, like you mentioned before, a hundred bucks a month uh less alone. less than hundred yeah. bucks
2: a month, and these are educated people english speakers bilingual
1: most people of the, the most of the the educated folks have fled, and those who have stayed. It, Having to do second jobs like drive taxis because inflation takes away, you know, gets in front of any sort of a raise that they can have. Um, so mm. it's and all the all the government jobs, which is the massive bloated government bureaucracy, are given to supporters of the regime. So it's difficult for a, an independent person to to, to find their way through. Uh, and right. all these types of things are something that that they would never support in the U.S. or in in the Western world. But yet for some reason is okay for, for folks you know south of the border, which is exactly what the stones. <laughs> let <laughs> me called. let me just
2: let me let me just okay. touch on that briefly, actually, because. When I was in New Zealand in 2008 um, at university, we had one of the PR people from the Chavez regime come to New Zealand to promote what was going on there. And even back then, I was very suspicious as to what whole movement and that these people were really respectful of freedom of the press. But you would have been amazed as to how many people came out of the woodwork and we're just gushing over this Venezuelan representative. They're just like, oh, we're in power now. The socialists are ruling. This is great. And I just don't think they wanted to have their hopes vanquished. You, what sort of initial reaction have you got in, in the popular press? I mean, I know we wrote an article about it and I think it was a wonderful review. What other uh, responses have you received? I've seen one video interview.
1: Yeah, I've done video interviews on, you know, on, on NTN and on, um, I did one on CNN Español and I did one on, was America, etc. Um, you know, the, the the historically the the arts or the the arena of literature has belonged um, as as has belonged to the left. Has belonged to those who would support this type of project, which is why sure. you don't see a lot of folks writing about this. And so um, on the on the side of those who believe in liberty, people are happy to see that that we're um, that we're also fighting back with our own our own books, our own. Um, it is know, it is rising it on, more. Please. you know
2: obviously obviously Ayn Rand was you could say the big big name from way back who did this but I've seen it more and more these uh, these works of fiction being promoted at conferences so yeah it, it is a, a wonderful development
1: uh, and the, so the the publisher is uh, Grito Sagrado but the biggest liberty publisher in Spanish is a group called Union Editorial out of Spain and they have just co-sponsored this book uh, along with Grito Sagrado, and and put it, and because they haven't, they have an, an entirely new publishing strain that they call Atlas Libertas, which is uh, novels and literature about liberty. Um, mostly the they publish works of Hayek and and um, Mayer and everybody. But now they're they're they're, and this is the second book in that, um, or in that new sub-publishing, if you will, uh, for books of liberty. So I think that people are starting to realize the importance of also telling our Telling our story and, and, and allowing us an opportunity to to use fiction and literature and art to be able to also uh, challenge the the perceptions that um, you know, were these sort of cold, heartless uh you know capitalists is, is the way that they describe us that
2: That is really unfortunate because in my view, you and I we're not powerful people right we're We're basically commentators. And many people have this image of us as being these big corporate offices with h- views of you know Boston or New York or something, you know, plotting to you know plunder Venezuela or something. I'm going, that's not it at all. Like
1: we have no power. The people with power are the ones actually plundering the country right now. But well, the, so, and the problem is that that people have the the, uh, the socialists have succeeded in making the case that capitalism and crony capitalism are the same thing. So when we try to explain the nuances of why free market capitalism is not what you see on Wall Street or some of these, um, and then and th- it just completely falls on deaf ears. Like you say, the people who use political power to achieve economic gains does not have a party. I mean, whether it's the, you know, the, they, they love to call sort of the right fascists or left socialists. It's the same thing. Um, it's people who who believe they can use political power to, mal- to manipulate their way, their success economically. And then we believe that you know, we're the exact opposite of that. And that's the challenge of explaining to people because it it's nuanced and you can't fit it on a bumper sticker. It
2: is very unfortunate, too, because people think that the United States is capitalism or freedom or something like that, but in my view, it is cronyism. It is really a terribly... Cor- it's become terribly corrupt. So when they think that this is the, the shining city on the hill, the example they're going to lead to, them going, no, that's not the end of the road, that's not the end of the story at all. Here in the United States, we sometimes the country does feed off those perceptions or misunderstandings about cronyism versus capitalism. Now, you are over, I know we've got a couple of minutes to to go, and I just wanted to get your thoughts on how long have you been living outside of the United States, and what wisdom do you have for young people considering going out and living abroad as as you have?
1: Uh, The reason I I decided to go abroad, I started as an aid. I'm still working in that area, but I started as a relief worker back in the day, about 15 years ago, doing working in civil wars, like in Congo and Kosovo, etc. Because, you know, we in the U.S., despite all the flaws of America and all the challenges that we have, we're still the most prosperous, most successful nation that has ever existed. And that comes with, in my opinion, that comes with responsibility as well, is is trying to to use that economic advantage, the propaganda advantage, the the advantage of, of our story. I mean, more than just the money. The vision of America inspires people. It's a land of opportunity. It's a place where you can, with your own entrepreneurship, become rich. I mean, if you look across Africa, where I am right now, through all of the regulations and, and all of the corruption and all of the the, the ignorance and the lack of opportunity to, to actually create for yourself, and people see America as this land where they can, you know, with hard work, they really can build themselves in the middle class. Yeah. You know, so uh, I've always that that's been my role is to figure out how to do my best. Um, and because I have the opportunity to fight for those who maybe don't have the opportunity to fight for themselves, um, to, to seek out and find sort of those, you know, President George H.W. Bush talked about a thousand points of light. You know, seeking mm. out those points of light and fanning them and helping them glow brighter so that they can be the motors of and become the engines of their own civilization and own their own well-being and prosper and build and prosperous nations for their own people. So that's Brian. what I've been doing.
2: Uh, Joel, we are hard against the break, um, top of the hour. I really appreciate your time. His book is The Lieutenant of San Portofirio. Go to facebook.com forward slash the Man for a link to that. Uh, Joel, I'm really pleased we can be in touch. I appreciate the work you've done. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks
1: so much for the opportunity. Have a, have a good
2: day. Stay tuned, folks. This is the Stateless Man, and welcome to the second hour of the program. It's been a dynamite show so far, and it's going to continue that way. I'll say that uh, in, the, in the final hour we have Rob Nettleson, the preeminent scholar on the Article 5 Convention of the States, and I could not think of a better guest or expert to have on regarding that topic. He is a scholar with the Independence Institute, formerly a uh, law professor, and... Uh, he has written a ton of content on this. Uh, he, he, we mentioned through, we went back and forth through email about how I think he's done uh, four years just devoting full time to this topic. And one of the, he's been one of my sources uh, for a while because when I was working for think tanks in the United States, I used to refer to Alec content, the American Legislative Exchange Council, and he's written an article five handbook, uh, a handbook for state lawmakers and uh, proposing constitutional amendments, although. Never used. The states in the United States have the authority, the legal authority, to amend the Constitution by way of Article 5. So far, all amendments to the United States have gone through the Congress. So let me just, just as a little bit of introduction, give people Article 5. The Congress, whenever two-thirds of both houses shall deem it necessary, shall, shall propose amendments to this Constitution. Or on the application of the legislatures of two-thirds of the several states shall call a convention for proposing amendments, which goes on to say that basically you have to have a two-third, two-thirds of the legislatures call for one, and then three-quarters of the states, uh, which I think is uh, 39 states, have to actually approve it. So a very high threshold, and this has never happened before. And in my view, I've been following this for a while, that is a shortcoming Or of the state legislator, late, the state legislatures, because they have an authority there which they've failed to utilize. They're basically not pushing back or using the balance of power that is available to them. However, recently, a lot of negative coverage has been, has, has come to this topic. Now, I don't want to monopolize the mic though, so Rob uh, Nettleson, welcome to the stateless man. I'm very pleased we can have you on to explain this process.
4: I'm very pleased to be on, and thank you so much for the kind words. I should make one clarification. (laughs) While I've studied this over the last four years, I've not devoted my full time just to that. I'm kind of a, a constitutional detective. What I do is I go into parts of the Constitution that have either not been written about much, and believe it or not, after 200 years there still are, such parts, or yeah. I go into areas where there has been writing or research but hasn't been very good. And that's how I became interested in, in this Article Five process, because not only was it fairly neglected by most constitutional writers, but what had been written was, no. uh, was very poor. And it was riddled with misunderstandings. And so what I tried to do is get to the bottom of it, and I, I had to change my own views in the course of doing so uh, as well.
2: Well, one of the, I mean, let's just get right to the problem, really, that this authority is right here, but it seems like nobody wants to touch it. Not nobody, but very few because of this fear. And there are many groups that are basically just adamant, almost with a religious zeal, against this idea. So what are the big fears, and why are they misguided, if they are misguided?
4: Okay, well, um, first off, as you said, Article 5 has two methods of proposing amendments. Um, amendments have to be, still have to be approved or ratified once they're proposed. And right. there are also two ratification methods, and both of them have been used. But only the, the, the method of proposing through Congress has been used to completion. Now, I will say that there have been a number of campaigns over just, the years...
2: Actually, actually just just the them. What is the second method of ratification?
4: Oh, uh, the second method of ratification, if Congress chooses, is to send the proposed amendment to state conventions instead Mm. of state legislatures. You still need three-quarters or 38 states in order to ratify, but there's a choice that Congress has. uh, And it's only used the convention method once, and uh, it was fraught with some of the same fears that we're seeing today, but as it turns out, it worked out fine. Anyway, um, yeah. To propose the amendments, you, you could either do it through Congress, as you said, or through uh, or through the states, um, demanding a convention and then sending representatives to the convention. And this was a very, very well understood and accepted method. So there were several campaigns that uh, that got pretty far along that ultimately didn't result in a congress in, in a in a convention because Congress itself acted. However, mm. however, and here's where The fears begin. In the 1960s, a Republican U.S. senator sought a constitutional amendment to overturn some Supreme Court decisions, some very liberal activist Supreme Court decisions. Okay. Uh, A group of liberal uh, commentators and academics... um, went to Congress and went to the scholarly journals and said, oh, you know, you can't use this convention method. It could result in a runaway convention that could totally rewrite the Constitution, uh, abolish the Bill of Rights and restore slavery. I mean, they really literally said that. And then a few years later, when another conservative amendment was proposed, these liberal groups trucked out the same argument. Well, in one of the great ironies of history this kind of rewriting of what Article 5 is about was later picked up by some very deeply conservative groups, and they use it to, you know, to raise money and to make noise and so forth. But the result has been that we have not gotten needed amendments through because, of course, Congress won't adopt them.
2: There, there is just a lot I could say and I want to question you about. We've gone approaching the break. If people want to call in, uh, with a quick question, our time is very limited. They can do so 1-800-313-9443, and I'll pick you up after the break. Otherwise, we are speaking with Rob Nadelson of the Independence Institute. Rob, just before we go, one of the big challenges that many people have, I think, with even remaining the Constitution is that already, to anyone with a plain reading of, of the words, the federal government or people acting in the federal government are simply ignoring the Constitution in almost every way. What what does it even matter at this point, what we write down?
4: Well, it matters because amendments work, and often they work better than the original Constitution. An amendment is a a supreme expression of the people's will. It's a supermajority action of the people. And uh, we've had a number of corrective amendments, including, for example, the Bill of Rights. The First Amendment, for example, is still, while it's not working entirely as intended, is still an important bulwark of liberties over 200 years after it was passed. The 22nd Amendment, which limited the president to two terms, was established a little over 60 years ago. Yes. And uh, there's occasional grumbling about it, but it stays. In other words, it might, be, it might not seem totally logical to say, gee, why would they obey amendments when they don't obey the original Constitution? But as a matter of, it, of experience, they do. Uh, that, that generally amendments do tend to work. And that's why the founders put this mechanism in there as a way of correcting Congress with amendments if Congress ever became abusive or exceeded its powers.
2: That, yeah, I find that uh, very intriguing because I look at the Tenth Amendment, for example, and think, what authority has been left to the states anymore? It seems like nothing. Tenth uh, uh, Amendment are... is
4: a little bit of di- a different case.
2: Yeah, yeah, we are now we are at the break. Uh, folks, do call in to give a quick question or comment. We'll be right back with Rob Nettleson. Welcome back to the Stateless Man Pursuing Liberty Beyond Borders. I've got Rob Nadelson here. He is the author of the Article 5 Handbook, a publication of the American Legislative Exchange Council and the preeminent expert, in my view, on the Article 5 uh, Amendments Convention process. And he just mentioned before, I guess, responding to my one critique or concern that these people in Washington, D.C., just seem to find every way around obeying the laws written for them. And I... This pains me a little bit, uh, makes me a little bit less excited about it, but he believes that it is true in many cases that amendments do work. We can look at the Second Amendment to a limited degree, uh, but definitely the First Amendment, and he also mentioned the two-term limit on the presidency. As I've been reading about this Article 5 process, which to me is an untapped tool that state legislators have, was that... There have already been so many petitions for it. The Federal Congress could have already called a convention. Rob, is that a misunderstanding?
4: I think it is. But before I address this, I want to make sure that uh, nobody Mm. thinks you let me off the hook regarding the Tenth Amendment, which certainly has been abused. The Tenth Amendment lasted for a good long time. I mean, it was effective for about 150 years, and people have to keep that in mind. Margaret Thatcher made the point that there are no permanent victories in politics, but if we can pass an, am- an amendment that will help protect our liberties for the next 150 years, that will be a great achievement. The Tenth Amendment also is what we call a declaratory amendment. In other words, it doesn't have any independent force. It more, more explains how the system of enumerated powers and the Constitution works. And as a result of that, and I don't want to get too technical on you, as a result of that, it's not quite as an effective as effective device as say the First Amendment or the Second Amendment, or something like a balanced budget amendment or a term limits amendment would be um, on the issue of on the issue of um, how you get a convention that you just raised thirty four states, that is to say two thirds of the states have to pass resolutions called applications,
0: mm. and it
4: was expected by the founders based upon their extensive convention experience. That these applications more often than not would tell Congress what the subject matter of the convention would be. I mean, not just you know let's have a convention so we can have a big party, but can we have a convention? And by this I mean a diplomatic meeting among state representatives uh, to sit down and talk about a particular issue like term limits or balanced budget or, or whatever. Okay. The, the reason the reason that a convention has not been called is that although we've come close a few times. We have never had 34 applications covering the same basic topic, and so Congress has taken the position, and I think quite reasonably, that until you get 34 basic, uh, calling for the same kind of convention, there's no obligation to call.
2: And so you think that they would they would go ahead if we did actually get 34, so, say, calling the Constitution, for
4: the... The yeah. Constitution is absolutely clear, and the history is absolutely clear, that the that it is a mandatory duty upon Congress. It's more like an executive duty than, than, a, than a legislative duty. And if Congress disobeys it, there is authority indicating that the courts would order it to o- obey or order an officer of Congress to undertake the duty. So I don't really have too much fear that Congress is going to... Uh, how how long would they have, they have, have the to get duty.
2: that done, though? I'm sorry? How long would if Congress have, let's, let's say we get 34 in April, would, it be, would would a convention occur before the end of the year?
4: We don't know that, but I suspect it would. I mean, again, the longer Congress waits, the longer you've got a risk of a constitutional crisis, uh, the longer you've got the risks of the states becoming arrest, restive, suing and doing other things. That's not, I think, a political burden that, that Congress wants. Remember, Congress is still full of politicians, and over the long haul, while they try to find ways to evade their duties... Uh, some t- when their feet is held to the fire, are held to the fire, um, they generally tend to act in a reasonable time. Again, if they don't, uh, then we do have a constitutional crisis on our hands. But we shouldn't assume that that's going to happen without even trying.
2: Mm. Uh, I would just not make a note about the Tenth Amendment that um, it does say that basically all uh, duties not specifically delineated for the federal government. Uh, reserved to the c- citizens and to the states. And many of you know that one of the key reasons that the federal government has been able to get around that is through its uh, basically controlling of the purse, that, uh, for example, if you don't obey our, one of our mandates, we just won't fund something. Or in the case of unemployment insurance, if you don't en- enact an unemployment insurance system which is consistent with what we require, we'll just tax you at a, at a tenfold rate. It's a very unfortunate problem, but it is one which I don't see an easy way out of. And like you said, there there was a, a long period where the Tenth Amendment, did have some teeth, and still people are referring to it, actually. There is the Tenth Amendment Center.
4: Now, yes, and, and as I said, as you said, it had teeth for about 150 years, which is a pretty good long time in politics. Um, I've written about many clauses of the Constitution, and you can find the, what I've written at uh, our, the website. It's constitution.i2i.org constitution dot the letter i the number two the letter i dot org right. and among them has been a very influential article which was written for kansas law review it's a, a state a law journal which discusses the spending power this use by congress of uh, of its taxing and spending power to accomplish purposes that are really outside its constitutional purview explains mm. the history of what that provision of the constitution means clears up myths about it from both the right and the left and uh, ultimately concludes as you might suspect that congress has is really exceeding its powers. When I do my you know I I'm, I'm a I'm a politically I'm a strong conservative and I've been active in conservative politics since 19, eight, 1964 and I personally <laughs> I personally have taken I personally have taken several rhino republicans to primaries Mm. But when I do my constitutional research, I really try to put that aside and do it objectively and tell you, you know, exactly what this clause means. And as in the case of the Article five research, Fergus, that means I've, I've had to change my mind, and I'm willing to do that when the evidence points in the direction uh, as strongly as it does.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, we've only got two minutes left, and I, there are sort of two things to go at. One is, one is I wanted to know, I guess you could say the most pro- promising amendments, but I think that the big question is just this runaway convention. So, and if you feel like you've addressed that enough, we can move on to the second question, but any other thoughts on the people who just really think that there's going to be some kind of re- okay. reworking of the entire country?
4: What we have right now is a runaway Congress. Congress sits as a standing constitutional convention, does almost anything it wants, uh, and and the Supreme Court usually complies, except mm. when it comes up with decisions even further to the left. But the but if you read the uh, the book you mentioned earlier, the Alex, uh, the American book, Exchange yes. Handbook, it there there are safeguard after safeguard after safeguard after safeguard against the runaway. There's like a, a six tier series of safeguards against it. I just think it's a complete uh, it's a complete bugaboo. And um, and I think that the I think the text of the Constitution, the law of the Constitution, the history, and the current political realities all make it an exceedingly un um, unlikely event. Especially since that convention is not going to have control of the Pentagon. They're not going to have the armed forces to to do to do what they want. So. Uh, to to me it's it's just a it's just a red herring it's a way of making excuses for ourselves uh, against doing what we all in our heart hearts really know uh, know needs to be done and that right. is to use the tool that the founders gave us for precisely the kind of crisis we face today
2: that's that's uh, my point too man rob i just think it is a tool that's right there that isn't it's a constitutional tool and That's so... right. It's like
4: it's like the veto. I mean, what would you think of a president who said, "Well, you know, I think this law is wrong and unconstitutional, but I'm not going to veto it because, gee, I, I wouldn't want to use that." Well, we, president... we
2: have we have to go to the break, Rob. I really appreciate your time, and I hope people do read your book, the Article Five Handbook. Welcome back to the stateless man we're pursuing. Liberty Beyond Borders, I just got done with Rob Nadelson but the prospect of, you could say, restructuring or amending uh, the United States Constitution by an Article 5 convention process, a, a balance of power uh, tool available which is not being used. And I mentioned my concern that these uh, politicians don't obey such laws. Uh, I guess if that's their temporary stopgaps, but I don't know. I guess I get concerned mainly that the you could say false narrative or rhetoric flowing around and uh, people uh, attacking each other as though in in my view in an unjustified manner and I think he is he has done the research and it is a uh, a safe measure. It's, I usually don't want to get so engaged in you could say political realm but um, and, but in this case it has been of, of personal interest to me back to my days in Louisiana when I wrote about it significantly as a reporter and editor there and we were seeking to pass something at that time, uh, so I feel more um, personally interested in it, and I hope uh, he was insightful. We have uh, next up the final guest on the show. Uh, he almost needs no introduction. I remember back in at Loyola University New Orleans, he mentioned that people don't call him Walter the Moderate Block for nothing, and uh, I can agree. This man um, has been a, an outspoken advocate for liberty for... I'm thinking 40 years, I'm not sure, but a long time before I uh, came into the um, movement. And I've read his articles for a long time, too, mainly at lourockwell.com, but he's also um, heavily involved with the Mises Institute, and he is, he's done many presentations. I've seen him speak at Students for Liberty events and uh, also quoted him in many articles. Uh, so, Walter Block, uh, thank you for coming on The Stateless Man. I'm glad to have you back.
0: Thanks for having me on your show. It's good to be talking to you again,
2: Fergus. Right. Now, Walter, I wanted to bring you on to discuss perhaps your, your area of best expertise to some degree uh, in terms of the professional realm, and that is the role of economics in higher education, and you are building, you have been developing for a, a few years now, I think maybe 10, 15 years you've been in, in New Orleans, you've been, you've been building a distinct department, uh, and I know you, uh, you you sought to have it particularly produce a master's in Austrian economics, although that has that not gone ahead, but you're building an independent uh, or different department. And many of us wonder why that is necessary, right? So why is, you could say, free market e- economics even a niche a niche uh, realm when, when many of us just think uh, the free market is a logical conclusion from basic economic rationale?
0: Well, I think it's very important that we have some free enterprise professors because uh, even though economics uh, professors on average are way more free enterprise, property private property rights oriented than, say, professors of sociology, history, religion, literature, you name it, mm. uh, still they're not as free market as I would like them. And I'm very lucky at Loyola. We have a five-man uh, economics department, and all five of us are uh, rapidly uh favor of free enterprise. So let me put in an advertisement if, if you're a high school kid listening to this or uh, or you're a parent or a grandparent of a high school kid who uh, uh, is going to be going to college and you want to have a free enterprise education, uh, Loyola University is a very, very good place uh, to think of.
2: I, I want to back that up, and that's one reason why I'm so glad to have you on, Walter, because in my, I went to Boston University, which, and studied economics there, which is a, you know, high, highly ranked uh, college in terms of economics, at least. And I thought that I did not get a broad enough education in economics, right? Even though I did a directed study, and I was a very curious student. It's strange how only after that time when I did my own, you could say, watching documentaries, lectures, a whole new realm was open to me, and often I wonder why that was the case. In particular, the Federal Reserve did not receive attention, uh, not in the way, not in a critical manner, and particularly in the realm of free banking theory, that just did not even come up. And so, if you, if you are seeking to get a richer or broader, um, investigation into high reg- into, into economics, as an undergraduate, Lola is a great place to go, and New Orleans is a, an interesting or unique city as well. You, you also, I mean, I'm not sure whether you use the term Austrian Economics to describe your department or uh, an Austrian school dominated, but many people I think still don't know what that is, and sometimes I get a bit confused about it too, actually, uh, because there are different, I guess, perspectives on what it may be and whether it's a distinct school uh, at all. Do you want me to just to give a roundup as to what Austrian Economics is and whether, it, you know, how prominent it is at your school?
0: Yes, uh, I would say all five of us are either Austrian economists or very, very sympathetic to Austrian economics. Austrian economics has got nothing to do with the economics of the country Austria. The reason it's called Austrian economics is because the creators of it, the uh, first people, Menger, uh Mises, Hayek, uh, all lived in Austria. It's very similar to Chicago economics, the University of Chicago economics of uh, Milton Friedman, George Stigler, and Gary Becker. Right. To name a few prominent people, it's got nothing really to do with the economics of the city Chicago. It's just that it's, uh, named that because the people who created it and uh, started it were all at the University of Chicago. Uh, these are the two free enterprise schools. Uh, the Keynesians, the Marxists, in contrast, the uh, the Krugmanites would be a very non-free market. But of the two, the Austrians are much more, uh, Consistently, free enterprise, the Chicagoans uh, compromise uh, an awful lot. Uh, we do have, uh, as I say, five uh, out of five uh, free market economists, but don't think that all you're going to get is free market economics, because what we do mainly—at uh, least what I do—and I can—I think I speak for my colleagues—is we have to present all sides of the uh, spectrum; otherwise, our students will be ignorant. But what we do is we add on an Austrian or free market critique to. Uh, uh, the mainstream economics, and I think it helps our students learn mainstream economics even better so it doesn't uh, detract from that, but then they get a, uh, a private property rights libertarian perspective as well.
2: Right. Well, let me. Um, I, I get concerned when people describe Austrian economics uh, in, in terms of its outcomes or conclusions uh, in favor of the free enterprise system. It's true that uh, it's dominated by um, almost anarcho libertarian uh, people. What are the pre uh, suppositions or uh, uh, understandings within the field that lead to that conclusion?
0: Well, the difference between Austrian economics and all other schools, including the Chicagoans, is that they are all logical positivists. They uh, see economics as an empirical science. Mm. Whereas we Austrians see uh, economics more as a branch of logic. Uh, for example, take the minimum wage law. There's now a big debate over the minimum wage law. And uh, various people are doing various empirical studies to see, you know, whether the minimum wage law does create unemployment for unskilled workers or not. And this would be uh, very much in, in keeping with the mainstream view that you have to test hypotheses. Whereas uh, Austrians don't see economics as a, a bunch of hypotheses. Rather, we see things as a bunch of logical laws similar to the Pythagorean theorem, or 2 plus 2 equals 4. So with regard to um, uh, the minimum wage, our view, or at least my view, and I think I speak for many Austrians, is that the minimum wage uh, will create more unemployment than would otherwise exist had the minimum wage not existed, provided that the minimum wage is set uh, at least above the productivity of uh, at least one person. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, this is untestable, because... Uh, we're saying higher than would otherwise exist, but, you know, we never have federalist, uh, paris, or other things equal. It's possible you have a minimum wage law and the uh, the jobs for unskilled workers goes up, but that means that something else has changed that's not due to the minimum wage. Now, let me give you another example or two or three. Sure, sure. We say that there's a tendency for profits to equalize in all industries. So if one industry has got a a 100% profit and another industry's got a 2% profit and a third industry is losing money. There's a tendency for money to funnel out of the uh, low-profit or uh, loss industries and into the high-profit industries, which pushes down the high-profit and pushes up the low-profit industries. But at any given time, you're not going to have equality. So we just say there's a tendency. So you can't test that. Let me give you a third example. I'm now going to trade you my wristwatch for your pen. Mm. And I say that um, uh, in the ex-ante sense of anticipations, the reason we're both voluntarily engaging in this trade is because I like your pen more than my watch, or I like something about your pen more than my watch, and you have the inverse view, and how are you going to test that? You can't test anything. Now, Austrians are not against empirical econometric research, but we say that this just illustrates the theory. It doesn't test it. So this would be a, um, a theoretical difference between Austrianism
2: and, um, and mainstream economics, not a political one. Sure, sure. Uh, we are speaking with Walter, the moderate bloc. He is a professor at Loyola University in New Orleans, discussing the state of higher education and economics, and the particular program he has going. Uh, stay tuned to The Stateless Man. Welcome back to The Stateless Man. This is your host, Fergus Hodgson, broadcasting from sunny Florida. Beautiful blue sky today, and it's my pleasure to be uh, speaking with you and to have so many uh, fascinating guests, uh, people that I admire, whom I admire. And I just wanted to note that during the break, someone put up a note about the Article 5 process. Uh, Quote, it is foolish for anyone to believe that they would do any different after a con, con, as in a constitutional convention. And... I would just uh, respond by saying that right now the United States has basically a runaway uh, Congress and there is a tool to respond to it, uh, a balance of power between the states and the federal government. And considering that most of the problems are overbearing against the state government, there's actually an incentive for other state officials to push back. Uh, and I thought Rob referred to that really well and explained the the many layers of protection against any kind of runaway constitution. Uh, but unfortunately um, this uh, listener did not call in, but I'm I'm glad to have your feedback, and uh, I'm going to actually look to get Rob back on because we really uh, did not get into many other aspects of it, and I'm sure we can give him another slide. Now, we've got Walter Block discussing, yeah, the you could say that the trend in, in higher education and economics, or trends in higher e- education and economics, and the distinct school that he represents, this School of Austrian Economics. Now... Most people, in my assessment, come to these, you could say, um, differing approaches to economics or common-sense economics, uh, not through higher education, uh, through independent learning. And I assume, Walter, you would agree with that statement.
0: Yes, unfortunately. Uh, it would be very nice if, uh, if academia would include uh, what I call rational economics, but uh, mm. fortunately there are very few Austrian professors and an awful lot of students learn it through the Mises Institute, uh, which is an independent think tank uh, 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 dedicated uh, to Austrian economics. It's named after Ludwig von Mises, uh, who is uh, pretty much the father of the school, although not the creator of it, but in my view the uh, most eminent person. Uh, I did want to mention that not only do we uh, promote economics, good economics, but uh, all five of us are very staunch libertarians which is Hmm. political philosophy. I mean, you got me into the methodology of Austrian economics before in terms of whether you test or illustrate theories, which is a little esoteric, but uh, I think libertarianism and the libertarian party and private property rights and, and what Ron Paul has done is also another feature of Loyola University, at least the economics department now. Uh, don't think that the sociology department here or the political science, history, uh, literature, religion departments are like that. No. If you come here, you'll get the usual uh, Marxist, feminist, uh, uh, whatever, homosexualist, uh, 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 queer studies kinds of uh, things, but that's uh, rampant in every school. I don't think it's bad. I think uh, students ought to be uh, have their nose squashed into Lots of theories, lots of different views. What the what the university ought to be is uh, open to diversity of intellectual opinion. But unfortunately, most universities, uh, when they think of diversity, they think of race or sex or gender or sexual mm. preferences or things like that. But uh, the university is supposed to be an intellectual place. And you'd think you'd want to have some intellectual diversity, and uh, unfortunately, there's very little of it. Let me just speak of the local competing universities right here. That would be um, Louisiana State University and Next Door Tulane. Mm. At Next Door Tulane, there's only one out of, I don't know, several hundred professors who are libertarian, Eric Mack, a friend of mine. And at LSU, uh, not a single solitary one. And I know this because I give lectures at these places, and I ask the students, are there any libertarian uh, professors there? And uh, they'll either be one at uh, Tulane or zero at LSU, and unfortunately, I, I don't want to pick on Louisiana, but most universities are like that. They they just don't have libertarians or Austrian uh, professors. It, it is
2: few. yeah, it is very strange because we I've had you before, and I mentioned that two of the first books that I always uh, offer to people or recommend they are The Law by DA and Economics in One Lesson. And often I wonder, why did we never learn about the classical, classical liberalism in college, right? It just is, is, not there. And I'm glad that there's this, uh, opening in, you know, you could say in, in a broader, um, broader, broader education outside of just universities, uh, where people can learn those things and, and the interest is growing. One, one particular, more, pre- more specific question would be, in the United States there are, you could say, a limited number of universities that are, have this free market orientation and the most prominent one is George Mason and then there's Hillsdale College and historically there was or is New York University. What is the status of Austrian economics or free market economics at New York University and if it is gone now basically, why is that?
0: Well, Israel Kirzner was the leading Austrian light at uh, NYU, and he's retired. Mario Rizzo is a magnificent uh, economist and libertarian, and he's still there. So any place that's got Mario Rizzo uh, can't be all bad. Uh, mm. There are one or two other people, colleagues of um, Mario Rizzo. But um, by and large, uh, libertarianism and Austrian economics would be sneered at there, uh, which is uh, highly w- unfortunate. W- w-
2: would be sneered at or is sneered at?
0: Uh, would be and is sneered at, uh, and classical liberalism, to the extent that it's even mentioned, again would be sneered at by most uh, of the professors there. So uh, at one time, NYU was very important because Ludwig von Mises himself was teaching there, and he had a seminar on Israel Kirzner and Murray Rothbard with his students. Uh, Pete Betke was there for a while, he's now at George Mason. Uh, Larry White was a professor there, he's also now at George Mason. Uh, Hmm. I I would agree with your assessment of George Mason. It's one of the most preeminent uh, uh, free enterprise schools. I would just say, if you're thinking of getting a Ph.D. in economics and you want to go to George Mason, come to Loyola first. That way you get two sets of professors. Whereas if you just go to Mason for undergraduate and graduate, you'll get the same professors. and This way you'll get more of a diversity within the Austrian libertarian movement.
2: What do you say to people, though, who are concerned that if they go to Mason or, or to a lesser degree, Loyola, I haven't heard people say that, so that one, but who are concerned that they want to get a job teaching and they're going to have a hard time if they go out on a limb like that.
0: Oh, Mason uh, lands their uh, graduates in, in various places, uh, uh, including the Loyola University in New Orleans. We now have two professors, Leo uh, Cranston-John and Dan D'Amico, uh, who are graduates of um, of Mason. Uh, so the George Mason places its graduates in uh, pretty prestigious places. Um, uh, so I, I would say that, you know, George Mason, I don't know what the ranking is. It's somewhere in the 20s or the 30s out of, uh, of about 108 universities granting Ph.D. programs. So I'm a big fan of George Mason. I send my students there, and they come out with Ph.D.s, and they get jobs. Not all back here at Loyola, although Dan Mm D'Amico was a student of mine and now he's a colleague of mine, but uh, professors uh, that have gone from here and elsewhere to Mason have landed in uh, very prestigious jobs all over the world.
2: Interesting, interesting. So, okay, let's say people have already gone through this process like me. Like me, I've already uh, been through uh, uh, both, uh, I've completed two bachelor's degrees. I'm not going back. And many of us look at, university as just a very slow and uh, resource-intensive process, expensive. What is the, the one corollary or different example, maybe language instruction, where I see language instruction at universities as, yeah, expensive, slow, inefficient, and now you can learn online through various alternatives uh, at a, a much swifter speed. And I know that the Mises Institute has this Mises Academy is this actually on a path to competing with universities in terms of credentialing?
0: Well, it's not on a par with credentialing, nor is it on a par, I don't think, with, with actual learning. Mm. Uh, certainly with credentialing, not at all. Uh, they don't. Uh, right. The Mises Institute does not grant any credential. It doesn't grant any degrees. They only have two or three courses there at any given time. They might have six or eight in total. I'm not sure exactly how many. Right. Uh, so in terms of credentialism, uh, these MOOCs, M-O-O-C, Massive, whatever, on, on the computer, uh, right now, at least, there are no credentials, so it's not competitive in that way. In a second way, it's also less competitive, although here I think pretty competitive. I mean, I'd rather, uh, if I wanted to learn economics, I'd rather go good economics and libertarian theory. I'd rather go to Mises uh, online than to pretty much any school uh, where you get some Marxist professor uh, if he's ever heard of this, just sneers at it. But Mm. on the other hand, if you compare uh, online with face-to-face lectures and discussions and dialogue and professors co-authoring articles with students and things like that, I think uh, Loyola is your better bet.
2: Right. Well, that was a... Nice way to finish off, Walter. I look forward to seeing you at future events. I'm not sure whether you're coming to International, International Students for Liberty in a couple of weeks, but uh, I'll be there, and uh, I want to say keep up the great work. It's my pleasure to speak with you.
0: Thanks for having me on your show.
2: Excellent, uh, folks. This is The Stateless Man, and uh, thank you for listening. I look forward to next week.